Hey everybody and hello humans, this is Not A Robot's DC Comic Review Show. This is it, the future state is over and we are diving headfirst into every comic under the Infinite Frontier banner. This week we are covering Infinite Frontier number 0, Swamp Thing number 1, Crime Syndicate number 1, Sensational Wonder Woman number 1, Suicide Squad number 1, and Batman number 106. My name is Josh and as always I have my amazing co-host here with me, Brandon. Howdy howdy. And Rob. Hello there. We are here to summarize, analyze, and editorialize every issue we cover without worrying about what the publishers think. We are on Twitter at NotRobotComics. Rob is at Rob underscore 2814, and Brandon is allergic to Twitter, but we're working on getting him some Zyrtec. We all answer show mail sent to NotRobotComics at gmail.com, so shout out to us there. The next part is dedicated to those that support us with their hard-earned money, but that is not the only way that you can. You can like, subscribe, download, and share our episodes as much as possible. It really helps to get the word out. Now is the time to say a big, huge thank you to the humans who help us support the podcast. They subscribe to our Patreon with tiers starting at just $1 a month so we can make sure we keep bringing you more and better content. This is the Not A Robot Must Be Human shout out and roll call. And that shout out goes to our humans Weird Science Jim, Blue Mondays, Hollister, and Roch Crockett. A big salute to you and an even bigger thank you. So what are you waiting for? Sign up and show us you just might be a human after all and get a shout out on the Not A Robot Must Be A Human roll call. Usually we take this session to have a general bullshit session with our co-host, but we are already having to redo the show because of some technical difficulties. So we're just going to dive headfirst into the books and let you guys know that there are a bunch of shows that are going to be coming out under the Not A Robot podcast banner. So make sure you keep an eye out. So it's only right that we start out the beginning of Infinite Frontier with the very first issue introducing us to the rest of what DC is going to bring us in the near future. Now that we're finished with Future State, this list of creators is crazy long, so I'm just going to get into it. The cover was brought to us from Dan Jurgens and Michael Yanin with lettering throughout by a larger world studio's Troy Pateri. The creators list will be done writers, artists, colorists, in order of the stories. And those are Joshua Williamson, James Steinan IV, Scott Snyder, Brian Michael Bendis, Becky Cloonan, Michael W. Conrad, Joel Jones, Tim Sheridan, Philip Kennedy Johnson, Jeff Johns, and Jeffrey Thorne. Art and colors were done by John Timms, Alex Sinclair, David Marquez, Tom Bonvillain, Jorge Jimenez, Tomu Mori, Alita Martinez, Mark Morales, Emilio Lopez, Joel Jones, Jordi Belair, Stephen Byrne, Rafa Sandoval, Jordi Terragana, Alejandro Sanchez, Jamal Eagle, Hi-Fi, Alex Maliv, Todd Nock, Dexter Soy, Howard Porter, John Ramita Jr., Klaus Jansen, and Brad and Anderson. Holy Moses, that's a lot of people. These stories are not broken up into chapters, and that is awesome because it really works a lot better that way. And without further ado, it is time for Infinite Frontier. This is a long one, listeners, so hold on tight. The book begins with Diana in all of her ascended glory and awesome new white costume, floating in space, confused as to what she's seeing. The quintessence appears and lets her know that she is witnessing the birth of a new multiverse that is no longer walled off from the rest of the Omniverse. Diana is still worried about the cost that the hands warned her of, but the quintessence offers her a place among them, and she turns them down temporarily, saying she will not join them until she knows that her friends are safe. They do not sense any impending great cost to Diana, they say, and Spectre offers her the chance for him to take her to go check up on all of her friends. First comes Superman. And she sees he's trying to take care of a crisis that's already done. Shazadam, who used to be known by Black Adam, 
actually turned up and saved everyone before Superman got there. Batman is next inside of Arkham Asylum following a big red-headed guy that reminds me of Peacekeeper 1 a bit. He does have red hair, he just doesn't have a mohawk. He's doing cell checks, goes into Bane's room and finds a Jokerized guard. He thinks it's Bane until he lifts up his mask and finds out that Bane is dead too and I never saw that coming, not in a million years. The last time Joker interacted with Bane, it was a serious mind screw, but he also gave him his mask back, so I'm almost certain that that is how the toxin got into Arkham Asylum. The red-headed guard calls for help, but the people in the guard room are already dead too. Over to Oracle, leading the Batgirls with Huntress at her side, and we see Babs is really into resuming her role as Oracle. An alarm goes off and she's warned about what happened in Arkham with the Code Green. She comments that it's too soon after the last attack. Next scene and we're going to visit Grifter with the Foxes minus Luke. Grifter busts in and tells them that they need to get to the safe room because of a Code Green alert that went off at Arkham Asylum. And I am now getting the picture that Code Green means Joker. On to Montoya and Mayor Nakano who are discussing the attack as well. And Nakano orders the GCPD to take on Arkham. Back to Arkham and it's looking like the guard from earlier is the only person that's there. He sends out another distress call and this time he's answered by Batman. Over to Themyscira, Diana wants to console her mother but the Spectre points out to her that this is likely just to make herself feel better rather than her mother. He points out that she has forged her own path and now it's time to let others do the same. She's sure that it's Nubia who will replace her. That's Diana that is. Hippolyta asks those who wish to be Wonder Woman if they're ready to face death and her version of death is staring into the eyes of Medusa, something most of us know would turn a person into stone. Nubia is the only one brave enough to attempt it and she survives. Rather than being given the role of Wonder Woman, though, she is given the role of Queen of the Mascara while Hippolyta says she's going to go out and enter the world of man. Then over to the future state Wonder Woman, Yara Flor, who is at the airport saying goodbye to her family as she's on her way to Brazil. Her aunt warns her of danger, but Yara, of course, won't listen. Off in the corner of the airport, we see two women dressed in hoods that are referring to Yara Flor as their target. Over to the JSA, where Obsidian and Jade are talking with their father, Alan Scott, the first Green Lantern. He comes out of the closet to his kids, which is good to see. I didn't want to see such an iconic moment in DC history be undone. We really are merging many timelines and worlds here, and I am digging it. He also says that he's been asked to be a sentinel to overlook the world's totality. Diana and Spectre focus quickly on the next generation of superheroes, the students on their way to Titans Academy, which Spectre warns will include some heroes and some that are quite the opposite. And then the two go to Metropolis. This is where Spectre tells Diana that they have found the great darkness she is concerned about, and that darkness is John Kent. He must never be allowed to become Superman. Even though he has the physical traits, he will eventually turn into a tyrant. Now, John shows that he truly is his father's son by using knowledge and compassion to save the day from the giant monster that was in the sky and do something good for the monster as well. He's called Superman more than once, so we may be moving toward that in the near future. Black Canary and Green Arrow are shown, and they are sort of taking a breather while dealing with all of the craziness of the timelines merging. Then we see a text being sent to Dick Grayson, Don Troy, and Jason Todd from Roy Harper saying, Hey guys, funny story. I'm totally back from the dead, but no idea why. Wanna hang? I hated when they killed off Roy. I was pissed off at the entire Heroes in Crisis series for multiple reasons. So I'm glad to see him back here without being undead or a zombie or a Black Lantern. Definitely. After the text, though, he throws away his cell phone and his trademark red ball cap, which kind of, that, that bit kind of confused me, though. 
Then the focus switches to Stargirl and the new JSA with Pat getting a call from the seven soldiers, his original team, that they is saying that they need him. And then we flip over to Batman again. This book goes all over the place. He's in radio contact with the guard inside, trying to give him directions to vent the air system. There is a fire inside, and the Joker sees that there are two nurses still alive using oxygen tanks so they don't breathe in the poison. But fire plus oxygen equals boom. We get a brief cameo of some significant Batman universe characters before we flip back to the guard. He's ran to the nurses to save them, and he gets to them in just the nick of time, but at a cost. He's lost an arm and a leg, and he is fading as Batman is told to put his hands up by the GCPD. We don't know if he survives or not. Batman does a scan and says that there are only 17 people left alive in the asylum, and they can shoot him if they want to, but he's going in to save them anyway. Then we visit Simon Saint, the creator of The Magistrate. He's speaking to Scarecrow, who is in the coolest looking Scarecrow costume that I have ever seen. And I think I might want to buy one. <laughs> Obviously, these two work together. But as for now, they agree that Gotham isn't scared enough to call in the magistrate quite yet. Out into space now, we've got Sam and Baz and Jon Stewart taking Teen Lantern to Oa for a meeting with the Guardians who are wanting to meet with her while simultaneously figuring out how they feel about the United Planets. With a visit to Flash, it is affirmed that he has found hope again, which is good news because I am so sick of depressed Barry. And he is titled as the Heart of the Heroes. Speaking of which, we go within the multiverse to the House of Heroes. Visiting their green-suited Flash as well as President Superman, Barry is at the totality and Wally has met him there. They discuss the two new energy sources in the Omniverse, the Elseworld, in an unknown planet that reads differently than any other they've encountered, and they are calling it Earth Omega. It sits out further than the rest of the new worlds that have appeared. Barry has been offered a place on Justice Incarnate, that is the Justice League type team that's being put together to explore this new multiverse. And with that, Wally is now the Flash of our Earth. Yes, please. I love Barry. I do. But Wally is my man in the Flash costume. Always has been. Diana and Spectre have been witnessing all of these events. And Diana has decided that she is ready to return to the Quintessence. She has seen enough of the world without her in it to know all will be okay, though the thought of the great price that was shared by the hand still lingers. She returns with Spectre, but interrupts the quintessence as they begin to welcome her into their fold. She turns down their offer. Inspired by the ways that her colleagues are accepting of their new path, Diana says that she will feel as though she must join them and set sail into the infinite frontier. The end of the book is the epilogue, and that is a conversation between the quintessence. They have already captured the threat spoken of by the hands, and its prison is to be the planet that Flash earlier called Earth Omega, a place where even gods, then black word balloons finish the sentence, a place where even gods die. The black bubbles continue and say that even though they think all is good, all roads lead to the person that is speaking. This person has existed since before the first crisis and is now reconstituted from its lesser forms. It continues to say that this is time for lesser beings to remember what they fear. It is finite, it is final, and Darkseid is. Holy crap, guys. This looks as though the DC Universe just got a whole lot more exciting. Mm -hmm. So very many new beginnings tied to events that we all know, love or hate. 
The art was phenomenal. I didn't even mind Porter's boxy faces, and I normally do. Ramita Jr.'s art is the only real low spot for me here, and that's because it's so contrasting with the rest of the high-quality art that we've got through the rest of the book. Flipping to just lines, that's a bit jarring. Yeah. Other than that, I think this book was simply amazing, and with no hesitation at all, I give this a 9.5 out of 10. Wow. Brandon, what did you think? Uh, well, uh, there was certainly a lot going on in this issue, uh, and, and I mean that in a good way. I, I think that Infinite Frontier definitely succeeded in doing its job of trying to set the stage of what's coming next and get people excited. And I really just wanted to comment on how seamless the story felt. It started a little stiff, I think, for me, but as it really picked up, I think, in the Batman chapter... Uh, and then transitioned to the Wonder Woman chapter and then kept going. It really started to flow seamlessly, and that's when I really got into it. It's great to see Roy Harper again. Uh, I love Roy. It's, yes, it's, please. It's nice to see him alive and doing stuff again, and I particularly enjoyed the Stargirl chapter, even if it was kind of like a random placement. I'm, I'm actually kind of looking forward for the special that they're going to do. So uh, I think all in all, it, it definitely got me excited for what's, to come in the next few months. And I would say my score would be an 8.5. It definitely got me excited. Um, and I'm looking forward to, to the Infinite Frontier. I guess we're going to set sail into it, huh? What about you, Rob? Uh, so much to touch on, so many stories to, to draw from, but I have to start off saying that how are the hell are they going to kill off my boy Bane like that? <laughs> I... <laughs> What the hell? How are they, they going to make... I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't see that No, coming. definitely. No way. I, I don't know how they expect us to just accept it. I thought we were going to end up with a war between Joker and Bane, or like Joker manipulating Bane. Something along those lines, but I didn't think Bane was going to end up dead. Yeah. Which the next cover for Joker number one does have Bane in the background, so they might still touch on that. I am just now looking at this, and I've seen this cover multiple times. I did not recognize that Bane was in the back of this, so thanks for pointing that out. And now I'm even more confused. Yeah. <laughs> is, yeah. is he dead or exactly. not? Exactly. <laughs> I'm excited. Roy is alive. He's honestly one of the best sidekicks ever, besides Dick Grayson. Yeah. I, f I, yep. I loved Red Hood and the Outlaws oh, when yeah. that first yeah, came out. It was Arsenal, Solid Jason book. Todd, and Starfire. I loved that, oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Even when, when it was just the two of them, every outlaw after that, I, I followed the Red Hood book, and it it was amazing having him around. It was yeah. such a, a good fit. Now, I did find it interesting in that panel when he looked at the bow and arrow and then just kind of chuckled and turned away. It makes me feel like they're going to have him shy away from a whole archer idea and maybe do like another turn into a new hero identity. Yeah, it, that could yeah. be. Did Guys, did we notice whether or not he had a fake arm or not? Oh, I, I, did I didn't. Not, I kind of look at that right now. That thought just clicked huh. into my head. I am really curious because maybe he will abandon the bow and arrow in favor of being Arsenal a whole lot more. Mm -hmm. But um, doesn't? Yeah, he did. He tossed his hat yeah. away. He tossed his yeah. cell phone away. He's got both arms. And then he tossed. Yeah, it doesn't look like it. He's got both yeah. arms. That is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so with everything considered, it's I'm making me excited for the future and the state of it all. <laughs> I gave this a 9 out of 10. It's got a lot to look forward to. Oh, yeah. I think so, too, guys. Wow, what a book, yeah. man. There was a whole lot to read there, and I know we all enjoyed the hell out of it. I wonder if the rest of the books this week can live up to that one. Let's find out. 
The first one we're going to tackle here is not really tied to Infinite Frontier, at least not yet, but it is being under the banner. See Infinite Frontier right on the cover there. Written by Ram V with art by Mike Perkins and Mike Spicer, who are quite the art team, with Aditya Bidikar on letters and Perkins and Spicer on that cover. Brandon, what's growing on in Swamp Thing number one? (laughs) (laughs) Nice one, nice one. Uh, Well, it's interesting that you say that it's not connected to Infinite Frontier, because I'm sure it will fully tie in later, but if you have been reading Justice League Dark, then you would know that Alec Holland sacrificed himself to help the Justice League Dark take down the Upside Down Man. Yeah, he had to, he had to tie himself to the other world or yeah. other place, right? Yep. So yeah. there's been a bit of discord in the green as everyone ponders the big question, who is going to be the new avatar of the green? And that's where uh, the Swamp Thing picks up. So uh, in a dusty desert, we see a doctor looking upon a rotten cadaver covered in dirt, flies, and pupa. And if that horrific scene is any indication, this is the new tone of our Swamp Thing book. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Absolutely. So the sheriff and the doctor have a little bit of a back and forth about the cause of death. The doctor is basically commenting on how you can see the stage of the larva and pupa within the cadaver and basically date how long the person has been dead and so using that he basically Fun dates <laughs> absolutely basically dates that the person has been dead between nine and ten days but he also notices that the jaw has been rearranged and that is where the other police assistant a man named Emmett comments that Maybe it could be the mysterious Pale Wanderer who did it. And when the doctor asks about the Pale Wanderer, Emmett goes into a full story about the mystery of the Pale Wanderer, who is a former soldier in the Civil War who basically decided to settle in the desert. He was tired of fighting, so he was looking for a place where he could be by himself, and he makes his living trapping, working on a railroad, but eventually a depression sets in, and He is no longer able to provide for himself, so uh, instead of returning to a city to find work, he decides to stay out in the desert uh, where he continues to hunt, where he continues to live his life out there. But as he remains, he grows more and more feral, losing more and more of his humanity. And that's where our story ends, Uh, but we pick back up in the late 1950s where people are digging for oil, and we cut to a horrific scene of the Pale Wanderer, completely devoid of his humanity, drinking the crude oil as he snaps on the oil workers and completely tears them apart. Cue the spooky music. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, But we basically see the sheriff kind of reflect on why people come out to the desert and the silence of it all, and basically to see what people can discover about themselves and what they'll become in the solitude. And it's a perfect way to segue into a flight from New Delhi to JFK, where uh, a man by the name of Levi Kamei, who you may have seen on the internet as being the new avatar of the green, but we're not quite there yet, kind of reflecting on his discomfort of flying on planes. He's, you know, grabbing his collar. He's feeling uncomfortable. The man sitting next to him is asking if he's okay, Um, but he's sweating. He's just not feeling comfortable. And as he's doing that, he is having this kind of strange imagery of green around him, and he's not really sure what it all means. And he's reflecting on his time back in India, but 
really it's being overshadowed by this sense of impending doom of what is going on with him. And as he runs to the bathroom, feeling uncomfortable, feeling unsure of what's going on, we get this horrific double-page spread of greenery erupting from his body, completely devouring him, destroying everything on the plane, ripping the hull in half, only to find out that this is not the transformation of Swamp Thing as we thought it was. Yeah, I totally did. I I, I bought that hook, line, and sinker. Man. Absolutely. And had that been the beginning of the first issue of Swamp Thing, this would have been quite a horrific book, but we're not quite there yet. So Not yet. There's no telling to, where it's going to go, though. <laughs> yep. So we cut to Levi being woken up by the flight attendant. He's trying to shake off the horrific imagery of his dream. He goes outside to the terminal. He sees his friend Jennifer. They reconnect. She basically comments about his father, who has recently passed. They're walking over to her car. And then we see shadowy men off into the distance taking photography of Levi. We're not entirely sure why that is. It's possible there's some connection to what he was doing in India, but we're not really sure. Again, it's setting the stage. Um, we flash back to the desert where the sheriff and Emmett are on a stakeout. They're looking for any kind of activity because they know there's going to be a drop soon um, and we suspect they're just doing their jobs when in reality they're actually looking for any kind of violence because they know it's going to draw or they believe it's going to draw the pale wanderer or whoever was involved in the earlier death of the body that they saw and as we start to see gunshots and the police get in their cars and drive away the pale wanderer should appear before them and we get this just horrific imagery of who the pale wanderer is with is basically a rotting corpse with orange eyes and i'm not even entirely sure how to describe it but oh, it looks like one of the ghouls from supernatural oh yeah <laughs> yeah it is essentially a mouth where the lips have been entirely ripped off and all you can see are the rotting disgusting teeth so we flash back to jennifer's apartment in new york Levi is kind of going back and forth, discussing, you know, what happened on his time back in India, how he was trying to reconnect with his father, how his relationship with him had kind of suffered in the past. But Jennifer is basically commenting on, you know, how he had tried to go out there to reconnect with his father, but ultimately things went south. And we're not entirely sure how they entirely went south, but we know that something really bad happened. And it's somehow connected to Levi's strange feelings and connections towards the green. And as Levi goes to sleep and is reflecting on the forests and the environment of, during his time in India, he begins to transform and eventually gives into these horrific sensations that he's been feeling thus far. And as we cut back to the desert where the sheriff is essentially trying to hold himself uh, against the pale wanderer, we see erupting from the cacti in the distance is a new horrific incomplete malformed swamp thing which draws the pale wanderer's attention and so as the pale wanderer is kind of going back and forth the swamp thing reflecting on how he is a newly formed creature not a fully formed version of the avatar of the green but how they are both kind of these ideas clashing towards each other he's basically like i'm going to give you some advice and the first lesson I'm going to give you is that you cannot die. We are ideas and we cannot die, no matter what we do to them. But if you are truly worthy, you will continue to persist. 
uh, and if you are ready, we'll continue our lessons. And he basically sticks his hand into the Swamp Thing creature as he's kind of lecturing, lets him dissolve, and then we see in Central Park, Levi erupting from the body of a tree. And that's how our issue ends. All in all, I have to say that I absolutely love this issue. I have been looking forward to this. I am a huge fan of Swamp Thing. I adore the Alan Moore run of Swamp Thing. It's one of my favorites out there. Uh, oh, for sure, man. I even equally enjoy Must read. the Swamp Thing of the New 52 with Scott Snyder and Charles Soule. And so when they finally... Me do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so when they <laughs> The whole green and red and gray and all was, of the other ones, man, that was so good. Absolutely amazing. And I, I really enjoyed Rot World, that whole crossover they did with Animal Man and Swamp Thing. Yes, um, exactly. That but, was my favorite part of it. Uh, oh, yeah. Rom V, who had taken over for Justice League Dark, had kind of had his hand at writing Swamp Thing. He was also writing the Future State Swamp Thing series, so I was eagerly awaiting this, and it did not disappoint there is a heavy emphasis on natural horror, which I really enjoy. It's definitely digging into the philosophical questions of, you know, what does it mean to become this new connection to the green? Uh, what does it mean to represent that? What does it mean to be an idea? So there's a whole lot going on in just this first issue, but I have to say I'm really looking forward to it. I'm almost sad it's only 10 issues, but on the other hand, it's going to be 10 amazing issues, I'm sure. So my final score for this would have to be a 9.5 out of 10. Look, let me take this second. That's a hell of a, that's a hell of a score. Oh yeah. Well deserved. Let me take a second and just say this to comic readers, please. If you find books like Swamp Thing that you know are on a limited run or, or even books that are brand new that, that aren't well established and you want to continue to read those titles, get out to your local comic book shops and order them. Put Absolutely. them on pull lists because that's what keeps those titles coming. So I didn't know this was only a 10 issue run and now I'm very sad. <laughs> this yeah. book was amazing. Honestly, it kept me hooked the whole, the whole time. I didn't read a lot of horror comics before this and I didn't mess around with Swamp Thing too much. This kept me hooked the whole time. It was amazing page turner. It's nice to see somebody other than Alec Holland, a great character in his own mm -hmm. right, but somebody else take on the identity of Swamp Thing. The art was amazing. I cannot wait to see where this goes next. I gave this a 9.5 out of 10 as well. It was great. Can't blame you there, man. Now, I will, I, I will have to give that to you guys, man. Seeing a new character in the role of Swamp Thing, I think, is better than taking an existing character, say Poison Ivy, and making her the Avatar of the Green, oh, which I believe sure. was a thought there for a second. Mm -hmm. That might I have mean, been Sam Humphrey's I, I like but. the idea of just having this kind of, you know, someone who, because Alec Holland is, you know, he was a... a a botanist he kind of had a connection to plant life in a way and then if you read the scott snyder run you know that he actually did but that's a whole other right. thing um but it's interesting to see just kind of you know some person have to grapple with this impending force of the green and kind of presumably have to work through what that means and what kind of power he'll have at his fingertips so i think it's a fascinating approach and definitely I do opens too, a lot more stories than, you know, yep. maybe doing another story with Alec Holland. Second story of the episode, and it's the second one that I'm going to say holy crap for. <laughs> I mean, what a fantastic introduction to this new Swamp Thing. I love that we are getting a brand new beginning with a brand new character. 
And I love that Ron V can pick up from his last run exactly where it was left off. Dude, the art is awesome. The colors look so good. The story is superb. My bank account is wincing already because I already know that I'll be gobbling up every issue of this that comes out. One question. What's up with the rearranged teeth? I'm I I that threw me and I need to know more. <laughs> that that first part where the, it's like the teeth have been rearranged. I why? How did the yeah. how did the ghost do that? I've, I I need an answer, please. Um but other than that man, this is another one. Second book in a row that I'm giving a 9.5 out of 10 to. Wow. Now, let's and I don't do this guys. Like this never happens. <laughs> Yeah. Let's move from our heroes to something else on another world. With a cover from Jim Chang and Romulo Friardo Jr., there are two stories in this one, the regular title, and then a backup with the origins of Earth 3 Ultraman. First up, written by Andy Schmidt with art from Kieran McCown, Dexter Vines, and Steve Olaf with Rob Leon Letters is the main story. The backup was offered by Andy Schmidt again, writing with art from Brian Hitch, and Alex Sinclair with Rob Lee again on those letters. Rob, take us to Earth 3 with Crime Syndicate number 1. Alright, so we start with a look into Earth 3 history with the famous JFK assassination, but this time JFK is a tyrant, and instead of Lee Harvey Oswald pulling the trigger, we get Brightburn, uh, sorry, Ultra Man as a child, <laughs> heat visioning him in half and burning the First Lady's hand near off. We then jump forward in time to modern-day Metropolis with the Daily Planet doing a hit piece on Ultraman because apparently they have a death wish. <laughs> right? well, he didn't like it. <laughs> he didn't like it, and he flies a Daily Planet truck with a nice Action Comics number one throwback, by the way, Yeah. through one of the higher office windows so he can have words with the editor-in-chief, Cat Grant. He's demanding respect from her, but she says she knows him too well as Clark to give him any of that. While talking, he hears something brewing in the distance and flies off. Mm -hmm. We then jump over to Arnold DC, named after Benedict Arnold, the founding father of America on Earth 3, on a little historical tidbit, where President Oliver Queen is having a meeting with the Themyscirin ambassador, Donna Troy, who is the new superwoman. The meeting is a little one-sided with Ollie being tied up by a barbed lasso of what I can only assume is submission. <laughs> that's an that's earthquake. all I got from that too, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's all I can imagine. Uh, an earthquake hits and takes out the front lawn of the White House, which gets Superwoman really excited for what's coming. We then head over to Coast City and see Jon Stewart, the new power ring, observing a cop abusing a mugger. The ring on Jon's figure, powered by Volthum, I imagine, convinced him to flex his muscle, and he picks both the cop and the mugger up into the air, while the cop remembers Jon from the past also being a cop in his own right. Mm -hmm. He then drops them from a great height, splatting them onto the street, killing them instantly. We then head over to Central City where we see Johnny Quick and Atomica killing people at super speed with a crowbar with no remorse. And all of a sudden the ground opens up and Johnny gets attacked by a mutant starfish. If you don't know what that is yet, you'll definitely see soon. We see this starfish has popped up all over the place with Ultraman fighting it in Metropolis. The star gets the upper hand on him and latches onto his chest, taking over his mind, which forces him to kill everyone in front of him. And then we finally make our way to Gotham City, where we see Owlman, 
doing his thing, taking down a mugger and snapping his neck. He tells the mugging victim to spread the word that the Talons are always watching, mm-hmm. which is it's a very interesting twist having the the Court of Owls maybe as the head of Gotham on Earth three, or at least the head of the Bat Family, as it were. Yeah, yeah. This mugging victim unfortunately takes a picture as a memento, which causes Alfred to shoot him dead right in the back. As Owlman and Alfred then talk about what's going to happen next, Owlman gets word in his earpiece of giant starfish attacking major cities all over the world, but not Gotham City. He intends to find out why and somehow exploit it. And in the backup story, we get a look at a young Ultraman just before the JFK assassination back in 1963. He's being bullied at school, and his parents are taking advantage of his powers to do all the work on the farm. They eventually tell him, as he grows older, his secret past, showing him the spaceship he arrived on, and he goes mental. He realizes that, with all the teasing he's had, being called Meteor Boy and Alien, that everyone around him must know his secret already, and it's just been kept from him and he realizes at the same time that he's being used by his adopted parents. He takes the ship, flies away, and vows to never return, while his parents, a little saddened, I imagine just because they have to do all the work now, say that they're still good parents, and they still love their little boy. Brightburn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was right there for me. It, I, watching that movie, it looked just like Brightburn. Yeah, it really <laughs> did. The and story was practically the same. Honestly, I love Earth 3 books. They're so much fun to me. The story was grabbing from the start with that JFK throwback. The art was nice. It was simple. It was to the points. I like the updated versions of some of these characters. The, a new Power Ring, new Superwoman. It's got great potential for the future. I'm sad this one's also a limited series with only six issues. This was a 7.5 out of 10 for me. Fair enough. Brandon, what did you think about Crime Syndicate? Uh, I thought this issue was really cool. I'm, I'm still kind of surprised we even got a book dedicated to the Crime Syndicate at all. But you and I, me both. I thought it was just a really fun <laughs> peek into their, um, their neck of the woods, I guess. And I loved the glimpses of powering, and it was nice to see um, Atomica and Johnny Quick again. Um, I'm not entirely sure if those are the same ones from Forever Evil, but it's it's still cool that they're around and kicking, I guess. And I, I thought the little editor's note that they had when Owlman is talking about the Talons was kind of fun. I, I didn't know if that was supposed to be in reference to like the Court of Owls that Snyder did, but oh, maybe. selfishly, and I know this is kind of corny, but I would kind of want to see them do like an Owlman book to, oh, to follow this. That would just be that fun. That would be cool, yeah. yeah. And maybe get... Actually call it Owlman Who's Who as well. That'd be great. Exactly. Yeah, who's Who. <laughs> oh man, that's yeah. awesome. It was a really fun look at just, you know, what the crime syndicate are up to, and I'm definitely looking forward to see what they do next. As for the backup story, I thought that was pretty cool. I love the All-Star Superman reference in the beginning because you kind of, it's like with the Swamp Thing again where it kind of fools you, where it's got all the lines leading up to it and then it's just duplicitous bastard. And that was great. So all in all, I'd probably give this one about a 7.5. 
a very solid debut, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next one. All right. Now, the backup story that was in this book, I felt it was less of a backup story and more just like additional content. It didn't it didn't draw me away or feel like it wasn't related in any way. Obviously, it really was. Yeah. It was just giving us a peek at Ultraman's upbringing, which I thought was such a different approach. We've had lots of stories for Superman going bad, but we've never had one that was so bright burn before. And I, I do, I enjoy the hell out of this. Honestly, I was not excited at all for this book. I have never really read an Earth 3 story that I thought was a good one. Forever Evil was okay. I I just, it, it, it just never hit home for me. So I had some pretty low expectations. While this did not blow me away, it is way better than I had hoped. I do love the art throughout the whole thing. I, I, I love it. And the premise of the story is interesting with these new iterations of the characters, so I want to see where that goes. I'm going to have to give this one a 7 out of 10. And we will be back to cover the rest of the issues right after this commercial break. And we are back. That wasn't too bad, was it? Thank you, humans, for sticking with Not A Robot. We're starting this half off with Sensational Wonder Woman number one, written by Stephanie Phillips, letters from Pat Brazo, with art from Megan Hetrick, Marisa Louise, and a cover from Yasmin Putri. Brandon, why don't you run us through this one real quick? All right. There isn't too much to say about this one. It's a fairly simple story. We start off with Wonder Woman kind of in a very strange setting, but we see her as a housewife. She's basically getting some dinner ready, but it's intercut with some dialogue that leads us to believe that everything is not as it seems. Basically, Wonder Woman is just kind of going back and forth with her husband, and she's talking about how she's making him his favorite dinner, but eventually she makes a small little cut on her finger as she's chopping up the carrots, and that's when we reveal that Wonder Woman is actually on a slab being talked to by someone that we can't yet see, but Presumably after some battle, she has been incapacitated and needs to come into her consciousness. But basically, we see Wonder Woman kind of talking with her husband and she's reflecting on how she's feeling a little clumsy and not really sure of what's going on. But she comments that she needs to get some fresh air. So uh, she and her husband go out and decide to take a walk. And that's when a car is speeding towards a child who is playing in the street. And then Wonder Woman leaps in front of the car and tries to save the child before any damage can be done. The car smashes Wonder Woman's back and the car is absolutely shattered. That's when we know that this woman is not who she appears to be, at least not who her husband thought she was supposed to be. Uh, her husband is kind of chiding her on taking action and she's not really sure why he's so upset about it. Uh, and that's when we see that this reality that has been constructed around Wonder Woman is starting to crack, and we reveal that the person who has been talking to Diana off-screen has been Hawkgirl, and we sort of start to reveal that they've been in some sort of fight. And that's when we see that uh, Wonder Woman finally remembers who she is, and then we transition to the big reveal that it is Dr. Psycho who's been manipulating events so far. He is trying to catch up to Hot Girl and Wonder Woman, and she is trying to talk Wonder Woman out of her coma, and uh, Wonder Woman is slowly trying to wake up, but eventually Dr. Psycho finds them, and Hot Girl is trying to defend Wonder Woman, and as we see, Wonder Woman is kind of 
fighting in this mind realm um, where Dr. Psycho is basically trying to control her and keep her trapped there. But eventually she is able to escape just as Hot Girl is kind of being destroyed by Dr. Psycho. Wonder Woman is able to use her lasso, submit Dr. Psycho, kick him out of a window, and eventually save the day. And as we close, there's a little bit of banter between Hot Girl and Wonder Woman as they kind of comment on what strange world Wonder Woman was living in. And Hot Girl says, well, how bad was it? And Wonder Woman says, well, I was married. I'm sure that maybe some of our listeners can reflect on how constraining that is. I'm not entirely sure myself, but <laughs> this was a, a fairly simple issue. What about you? I enjoyed it. It was a nice little story. I like seeing adventures from that perspective where the action has happened and you're kind of seeing the aftermath. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a different take on a story, but I, I find them interesting in fact that in the way that it is a different take. Uh, I don't know if you guys watched the Harley Quinn cartoon, mm -hmm. but every time Dr. Seiko was speaking, all I could hear was Tony <laughs> oh, Hale's yeah. voice. Yeah, right. I could totally I could totally hear <laughs> that it voice. It made the book like ten times more enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I actually put down in my notes that the animation style makes me think of Harley Quinn, the animated series. Yeah, I could yeah, see it, it did kind of have this fun, cartoony mm -hmm. style. And I remember Megan Hetrick did another book during the New 52, Joker's Daughter. Oh, yeah. And that book, the story wasn't that great, but I did like mm -hmm. the art. So it was kind of nice to see her do a Wonder Woman book. It had a, a really nice, like you said, cartoony feel. That I yeah, it was a nice touch. Uh, with this book, it, it was quick. It was enjoyable. I, I gave it a 7 out of 10 as well. All right. Wonder Woman is, is, she's one of my favorite DC characters of all time. So, I mean, this book was a bit of a letdown for me. I hope that the sensational Wonder Woman title gets rebranded for the 12 and under crowd. This felt way too light of a read with too simple of a plot point. The art is okay, but very cartoonish, very animated in style. The colors look amazing, but I'm turned off by the overall title's presentation. I it's it's just not enough story for me with this being a Wonder Woman book. Over the course of the last year or so, she's been painted into being DC's greatest superhero, and this book doesn't do that justice at all. It's just too simple for such an iconic DC character, and why Hawkgirl is there just doesn't make sense to me either. Now, the animation style, like we said before, it does make me think of Harley Quinn, the animated series. So if, if you want this title, and you want to keep on putting it out, either make it for little kids 12 and under, or turn up the dial to 11 and make it for adults. Other than that, this, this honestly, it felt like a waste of time. I got to give this one a 5.5 five out of 10. Yeah, it just Fair it enough. just did not sing to me, man. Yeah, moving from an established character to a team book with a very fresh start. Our next title is wrapped in a cover from the same team that did the inside art: Eduardo Pansica, Julio Ferreira, and Marcelo Malo. Written by Robbie Thompson with letters from Wes Abbott, it is time to get into Suicide Squad number one. Okay, so we open with Rick Flag interrogating Amanda Waller on her new plans for Task Force X. She fills him in that it is too late to stop any of these plans because that team is already in motion. We cut to Arkham Asylum with two guards patrolling the sewers. I assume they're there for Killer Croc, but it still seems kind of weird that they're just patrolling the sewers. They get taken out by Peacemaker, who was teleported there instead of the main floor by accident, in quotations, by Bolt, who then ports the rest of the team, consisting of Shrike and Film Freak, into the proper location they were meant to be in. They locate their target, 
after Bolt takes Peacemaker back up to where he's supposed to be. And they insist to Waller that he's compromised, not really doing anything, just sitting there saying who, who over and over again. Mm-hmm. Waller reveals he's just lost his memory. He's fine. Get him back here. Okay, so Rick Flag, upon hearing Peacemaker and the rest of the team on the mission, Rick Flag proceeds to question everything even more and ask why Peacemaker, that psychopath, is out in the field. She then electrocutes Rick Flag and chains him up before he can cause any more damage to her plans. Back at the asylum, we are shown that the target they're looking for is William Cobb, the Talon. As Bolt goes in to take him, Cobb pulls out a hidden knife and slashes him in the neck, killing him. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, Cobb then pulls out a makeshift Talon mask and attacks the rest of the squad. Mid-fight, some green Joker gas that we saw a hint of in Infinite Frontier starts flooding the room. Film Freak succumbs to the gas while doing his best Porky Pig impression. (laughs) Shrike and Peacemaker continue to attempt to escape with Talon, but some guards arrive, and Peacemaker leaves Shrike to deal with them and the gas. That's the last time we saw him. Peacemaker and Talon now stuck between Joker gas and 31, yes, I counted them out, guards in a stairwell (laughs) have no choice but to fight their way out. I imagine there's even more guards coming. It's Arkham, there's dozens upon dozens. Meanwhile, back at the home base of Task Force X, Waller, seeing the mission go south and knowing Flag cannot be trusted as a leader, goes to her next choice, Connor Kent, who is locked up and chained up in Kryptonite. Now, there's some obvious signs of future state Suicide Squad in this. I'll be curious to see if they go in that direction or if they start to take it in a slightly different direction. I'd be down for a different direction. I didn't completely hate Future State Suicide Squad, but I would love to see a new take on on where they're going with it. I'm excited that they brought Talon back, but I just wish it was somebody other than William Cobb because I feel every time a Talon gets brought up, it's Cobb. Like there's yeah dozens of talents from history. Use somebody yeah, else. There there was even a Talon that had his own book for a short stint, and he was a good guy. Where where'd he go? Yeah, I would have loved to see him. Uh, the writing did feel a little lazy for me at times. The art was nice, but it was enjoyable. I gave this a seven out of ten. All right. Pretty average score, a little bit better than just the comic book. Brandon, what did you think about it? Um, I think this is going to sound mean. I think <laughs> I enjoyed the art more than I enjoyed a lot of the story. The story was interesting, a lot of setup, but I just don't know that I was that into it as I would have liked. I thought some of the interactions between Waller and Flag were the more interesting ones mm-hmm. um and really really just waller's whole place in the story and i, I kind of definitely want to see where they're going to go with the superboy plot because i, I want to know how they even got superboy you know from young justice into the suicide squad yeah i have to give this book an obligatory extra point because they put shrike in here and oh my god i can't believe someone actually remembered shrike he's like one <laughs> <laughs> of the lamest nightwing villains ever but they actually put him in here and that's awesome and then obviously they're gonna have peacemaker because they have a movie coming out Um, but (laughs) all in all i would say i definitely really enjoyed the art i just i love that image of superboy in chains like that's it's just such oh yeah that was cool imagery um and i thought the story was interesting enough that i would continue but definitely 
wasn't the best first issue in my opinion, um, so I would have to give this one a 6.5 out of 10. It would have been a 5.5 out of 10, but Shrike showed up, so I had to give it an extra point. <laughs> well, Shrike showed up, man, but he did not get to leave the building. Fame, f- yeah, nope. Film Freak, Shrike, and Bolt all died pretty quickly with yep. very little resistance. We've got Peacekeeper and maybe Talon and Superboy now. Dude, I've always loved the Suicide Squad books, with a few exceptions. But uh, similar to the last run, we're getting a whole new direction for the book. I enjoyed the hell out of Tom Taylor's uh, run on Suicide Squad. If you haven't mm-hmm. read it, I, that yeah, was yeah. a blast. Yeah, go that get it. Awesome. It was amazing. Uh, will Talon and Superboy join the team? We don't know, but I'm in to find out. Give me some more. I thought the story was pretty good, and the art is something that I will never get sick of looking at. This was great. Oh, yeah. And the biggest selling point for me was the fact that they wove it in seamlessly with the events of Infinite Frontier number zero. I thought that only made it better. I think that's where Rob was getting the cue to call it a little bit of lazy writing, though. And I can see that, but we'll have to wait a little bit longer to see how closely those things are all tied together. I am going to give this one a 7.75 out of 10. Cool. All right, right, it is time for the last book of the week. Written by James Tynan IV with art from Jorge Jimenez and Tomu Mori with both inside and on the cover with lettering provided by Clayton Cowles who is fast becoming my favorite letterer. That might be something strange to say, but he is awesome. Uh, the way that he the way that he makes clown hunters sound quiet and diminutive just by using all lower caps. I mean, I really, oh, literally, just read that like he's speaking in a whisper. I love him, man. And uh, and I I think I may be wrong on this, but I think it was Clayton who did the Jimmy Olsen book, which was so amazing. I think you're right there too. I think you're right there too. He, the the boy's all over the place, man. So I oh, I, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I want. I, I agree with you. He's awesome. Yep, uh, and I want him more. Uh, now we are heading into the only issue this week that is not a brand new beginning, and that will be Batman number one hundred six. And Scarecrow is back, looking badass as ever. Of course, talking about that outfit that he had on in Infinite Frontier number zero. It's like a mix between a Scarecrow, the Boogeyman, and a Plague Doctor. And it works. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh So he has somehow captured Batman, who isn't sure at all how he got into this position. He vaguely remembers driving and a woman talking to him, but he's got no clue whether or not it's real. So we go to a flashback and we find out that there is a new villain club going on in Gotham known as the Unsanity Collective, led by one Master Wise. They seem to be taking out the big media moguls. Batman has taken out some of the gang, but he cannot get to all of them in time, not without all the tech that he used to have. Oracle is on the line, and she has called in Ghostmaker for help, who arrives a fashionable 30 minutes late. They clean up, catch the baddies, and we get a little cool buddy cop banter before we move on, and I love that relationship between Batman and Ghostmaker. It's great to see Bruce Wayne act like a human. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. (laughs) Meanwhile, Simon Saint is making his sales pitch to Mayor Nakano about the magistrate, and Nakano says that he's interested and will discuss it with his advisors. 
At the same time, Scarecrow is perched on the top of St. Industries looking over the city Batman style. Back in Batman's brownstone, or rather below it in his garage, Bruce has set up this little mini Batcave, and him and Ghostmaker begin to spar as they discuss the goings-on of Gotham and how the Unsanity Collective is going to be painted as far more dangerous than they really are just for the sake of media sensationalism. Mayor Nakano returns to his home, and through dialogue with his assistant, we find out that he is in no way interested in the magistrate, and he gets a creepy vibe from Simon Saint himself. As Nakano watches the news sipping a whiskey, the reporter asks what madman will come next for the city, and we see a scarecrow behind Nakano on the other side of the window. And that's the end for this part of the story. The next part of the story is Demon or Detective, and it's all about Damian Wayne. Written by Joshua Williamson with art from Gleb Melnikoff and letters from a larger world studio's Troy Pateri, let's see what this one's all about. Damian is still none too happy about the way his dad handles things, and believes that he has gleaned all that he could from Batman, and that it wasn't enough. He has returned to resume his role as heir to the demon throne as the son of Ra's al Ghul. It seems as though Talia welcomes him, but disappointedly. She says she is disappointed that he returned in defeat rather than assume the mantle of the Bat himself. Damien contests that he rejected Batman, yet Talia, his mother, points out that she sees him as uninspired, returning with absolutely nothing. No money, no home, no family, he has no friends, and then... When he had nothing left, he finally turned to his mother when he ran out of options. She's not impressed at all. She's aware, all of a sudden, that they have been joined, and after they clear up that the assassins do not belong to either one of them, the new guests unmask and introduce themselves as the League of Lazarus, claiming that Talia must prove her worth. They've bested them, all of them, but one. He compliments Damien on his fighting style before saying he will draw demon blood tonight. Talia tells Damien to kill him now, but we see Damien hesitate. Something happens off panel with a streak of blood and a squishing splattering sound is shown, dripping in blood. Did Talia just die? If so, that is two major named characters that have been killed off in just this one week. And if we count the lower C-class villains like Shrike, Film, Freak, and Bolt, we've got five. Five villains died in one week. Yeah, who's next? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, and that doesn't count whoever and how many died in the Arkham event oh, from yeah. earlier. I could possibly so, a whole Batman rogues gallery yeah, save Scarecrow and the Joker. <laughs> right? I, I'm I'm trying, I really, really am trying to find something wrong with this book. The League of Lazarus is not an exactly original name, but, I mean, with Tynan writing, he makes amazing characters with awesome individual personalities, but those names always suck. <laughs> Ghostmaker, Clown Hunter, this is a punchline. That one kind of makes sense, but come on. The rest of them are, you know, at best a little iffy. Now, the only issues that I can come up with is that I really think that these two should be separate books. Damien could hold his own in a title, even if it was a six-issue run. He has. Or, you know, preferably a maxi. Mm -hmm. But Batman can always use more pages. I'm not going to complain about that. Melnikoff's art is really good. Not as good as Jimenez. 
But other than that, there's not much for me to pick apart here. This is absolutely insane. I don't think I've ever had more than one title score higher than a 9 for me during any given week. Yet, they don't come along very often at all. But this is the third one, guys. I'm giving this one a 9.5 out of 10 as well. Brandon, what did you think about Batman 106? Uh, I really enjoyed this issue. I um, First, I just want to say that I definitely do agree that Damien could hold his own book, which is why I'm excited that Williamson is actually getting to write a Robin book. And the fact that we have a Robin book, which feels like so obvious that you should have. I feel like there should always be some kind of Robin book, whoever whoever's out there. But I really loved having this backup in here. It, it's, it reminded me of like the older Silver Age issues that you might read where it's like a Batman with a Robin backup. And that was just really cool. Right. As for the story, even though in the past I have not been absolutely in love with James Tynan's Batman, though I love his Detective Comics, that's in one of my top five Batman runs, not stories, but runs. I I have to say that this issue was really refreshing because it feels like a, a clean start where they're not really trying to tie anything up. It feels like it's really trying to embrace a new and different Gotham. Um, and I and I do kind of like the Batman in a brownstone aesthetic where he's, you know, his neighbors are doing <laughs> yeah. and he kind of has to deal with that. <laughs> that was awesome. So that's a lot of fun. Um, and I, I'm digging this unsanity collective design. Like, I, I kind of agree with what you said where I don't think he's the best at naming things because I just, I literally get Clown Hunter and Ghostmaker confused all the time. They're so interchangeable and forgettable. Uh, but I love the name, the Unsanity Collective. That's so weird and unique. So there, there's just a lot to dissect about this issue that I really liked. Um, I, I, Agreed. I love kind of where Batman's at right now, where he's like, it's a changing city and I have to change too. I love having Oracle back. There's just a lot of great stuff going on. So, oh, and I haven't even got to the yeah. I I, I love the the Damien story as well. I I think it's just a great way to kind of reintroduce Damien in this new way, where he's you know kind of trying to figure out his place in the world without the Titans of the Bat family. So, I really dug this issue as a whole. I definitely give this one an eight point five. Looking forward to the next one. Awesome. Now here, real quick, we do know that there's a Robin book coming out, and I haven't looked into it yet. But do we know who the character that's going to be robin is is it going to be I tim drake are we looking at damien, damien yeah. oh it's damien any yeah. words on that oh it is damien. damien yep yes yep yep awesome oh that makes me happy and it's not <laughs> what i what i love is because they did have a robin book during the new 52 i think it was like robin mm-hmm. da- i said daughter robin like son of batman or something like that but i love how this title it's it's like it's just the robin title with damien like that's awesome he should absolutely be able to carry his own book and do whatever he wants. So I'm super pumped. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Rob, what did you think about this one? I thought it was great. It was quite the page turner. The art style was amazing. Mm-hmm. I also love the brownstone idea. The The Batmobile, the new Batmobile looks amazing as hell. Yes. Like, yeah, like I like the it. Batman Beyond-esque logo. Designing it. Oh yeah. Over the years, thinking about Batman as just being like that guy who's who's rich. He's not like the super powered guy, but doing all the stuff you can do. How people besides Tim Drake can't just figure out his identity by following him around always kind of made me wonder about stuff. But now that he's right. living in the heart of Gotham City and he's just parking the Batmobile under a brownstone, how is he hiding that now? <laughs> <laughs> 
Is he just like driving into the garage and hoping nobody's across the street? <laughs> that's a that's a good question. Yeah. yeah, I think it's he mentioned like he's using a lot of micro caves. So my guess is he just conveniently had a micro cave placed above an apartment in case he ever needed one. Even if he's not owning the building, it's just it's oh, there. Yeah. But that's I fair. could be wrong. Yeah. Well, that would make sense because he's got to be doing something to hide his identity. Yeah. And is dynamic with Ghostmaker. If this is the new dynamic duo, I'm dynamically happy. <laughs> I think they they were a lot of fun together. Agreed. Yeah. That last panel with Scarecrow, I was thinking the same thing when I first read it that it was a window, but looking at it a second time, he's actually in the mayor's bedroom. Oh. You, oh wow! I didn't. I did not. That. Yeah. Notice that. I just either, noticed yeah. that today and that wow. makes it so much creepier <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm looking at it right now you're right there's the bed yeah. in the background oh crap oh man that's horrible yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. that's one place i definitely don't want yeah. jonathan Crane infinite, oh, infinite frontier seems to be on their horror vibes this week i don't know what it is this and swamp thing and suicide squad yeah. had its moments and crime syndicate naturally yeah. i don't know what it is with this week but <laughs> like, give us more horror i'm down for it Oh, yeah, yeah. If, yeah, if this is going to be the vein, I'm not saying that DC needs to make sure that all of their titles go this way, but when the stories and the characters naturally progress toward that direction, yeah. man, let it happen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sorry, uh, yeah, the Robin backup, I love. I've been a huge Damien fan since he came out on the, the scene. I grew up with Robins, and so I'm a huge Robin fan. I'm excited for this, and like you guys said, I really wish this was its own book. It could definitely hold its own. But if sure. it has to be spread out, I can't wait to see what happens next. And hopefully this story progresses into its own book. I gave it a 9 out of 10. It kept me hooked. It was fun. It was a great read. One of the best books this week. For sure. Can't argue with that one. And now it's time for our favorite part of the show, where we get to pick our top three books of the week and our favorite panel slash moment of the week. Rob, you want to take us off with that one? All right, so my top three, starting at number three, I had Batman. Like I was just saying, it was a lot of fun. One of the best books of this week. Cannot wait to see where it goes next with the Scarecrow. This new Scarecrow looks terrifying. Number two, I had Infinite Frontier. That kind of speaks for itself, setting up the Infinite Frontier uh, saga going forward. Number one, I had to give to Swamp Thing. That book was incredible. I like. I haven't been a huge Swamp Thing fan, but I am now. <laughs> hey, then then that comic book did yeah. its job. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, the best panel was hard to choose because there was so many amazing panels in Swamp Thing. Oh yeah. But that last page of Batman, uh, seeing the bed in the background makes it so much creepier and arguably scarier than anything that they had in Swamp Thing, so that's my best panel this week. <laughs> I can't argue with that, man, and now I want to change my answer. I'm not going to, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was Alright, Brandon, where were you at with it? Uh, well, my uh, top three books, my third favorite book of this week has to go to Batman. That was just such a phenomenal read. Definitely a step up from some of the previous issues that Tynan did, and I'm like I said, I'm just excited for this direction. And I don't know if they're going to keep doing the Robin backups. I kind of hope they do, even if he has his own book. But um, like I said, there was just a lot to like about this new setup. Uh, number two has to go to Infinite Frontier. Again, this is also a setup issue, but 
in its own way, like it is a story. It felt like a full story that I could definitely see myself revisiting at some point. It's just, it's a great way to set up the status quo, but also give you a satisfying read. It's very dense. There's a lot going on, but it has me excited for a lot of the new moving parts at DC. So definitely looking forward to that. And then number one, and I'm just now realizing that my lineup is exactly the same as Rob's. So I guess that's <laughs> to our taste and quality, but um, I have to give it to Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing was absolutely amazing. I was totally looking forward to this book. I was not disappointed at all. Uh, like I said earlier, I'm a huge fan of Swamp Thing, and to see Ram V just get to really do his own version of Swamp Thing was so satisfying and so interesting. And my panel of the week, it is incredibly difficult to choose. I really wanted to pick something from Swamp Thing. There were so many amazing ones, and I... Would love to give it to that double page spread. Oh, Him just yeah. destroying that airplane yeah. because I just I I keep coming back to that one. But my favorite one actually has to go to a panel from Infinite Frontier from Jorge Menes, where Batman is kind of like it's directly under the part where he's lifting the body of the Arkham Guard, and it's he's kind of like shown from the back. Um, and mm-hmm. you can see him and it's it's I just like I was so stunned by this image where it's it's it reminded me of something from year one. It was just so amazing. The coloring, the mood, everything about it, where the the guard is just saying like, okay, good, I'm going to sleep now. But that shot alone was just amazing. So I had to give it to that one from Infinite Frontier. That's great. You guys are dead right, man. There are there's so many good stories this week. There's so many amazing yep. panels. I sat here and stared at my screen, looking at the scores that I gave each book, going back and forth, flipping through the pages, trying to figure <laughs> out where am I going to put these things. Right. I have three books that got 9.5s this week. Yeah. It took it took me a while to get this, but I'm doing it for reasons. Swamp Thing was absolutely amazing, and you can't argue yeah. that. We get um, amazing art, amazing story, a brand new Swamp Thing. That's cool, but because of the other two, I'm going to have to put that in place number three. Batman, I'm a huge Batman fan. I always will be a Batman stan. And the Damien backup story was amazing. Jorge Jimenez is like, he is my favorite comic book artist at this point. And you almost can't touch him. Oh, and yeah, if definitely the, in it, DC too. I mean, oh, for I really sure. can't think of anyone better than him right now. No, not at all. There, there's, there's some really good ones that are out there, but uh, nobody is on his level. That, yeah. That is for sure. Uh, the story was awesome. The art was amazing. That one's getting number two. Number one, I'm going to have to give to Infinite Frontier just because it was so enveloping and gave me so much, so much to be excited about. That one's going to have to round out my first place. My favorite moment is difficult because, like you guys said, there's too many to choose from. Swamp Thing blowing up that plane was awesome. Oh, yeah. The double-page splash at the beginning of Infinite Frontier when Wonder Woman's floating through space says she doesn't understand anything. There's that huge caption off on the side. Her outfit, which I wish was sticking around but isn't. (laughs) That was a contender too, but I'm going to have to choose that big splash page showing the new outfit for the Scarecrow. It looks so sick, dude. Just wow. I want that as a poster. A big, huge framed autograph poster right next to me as I podcast. (laughs) If anybody wants a Christmas or birthday present, that's that's what you get me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I, I do have to ask, though. I'm I'm looking at that that double-page spread in the first, like, three pages. Did the artist draw that Infinite Frontier caption? 
Because if he I, did, that's incredible. That looks it, like good. It does not yeah. look as though it's printed in any yeah, way, no, shape, or form. Like, that yeah, is that's amazing. Total art. Wow. That that reminds me of um, Zermanico. He does. Yeah. He likes to do things like oh that. Oh my god! Yep. Just such but, uh, amazing art this week. It it really was, man. They the, DC knocked that out of the park, man. And yep. my fingers are crossed that they keep this train going. Yep. And this was the first week, so that's that's it, very encouraging. Exactly. And hopefully that two month break that they had, well, technically three month break if you consider endless winter that they had to get all of their ducks in a row. Let's hope that they pulled that off. Now, that was our favorite part of the podcast. Now it's time for your favorite part of the podcast, where we choose the biggest thinker. Oh, that's nasty. Brandon, which title made your stink list today? Well, it's it's hard for this week because I can't say that any titles were particularly bad. Like I said, my, my choice for Biggest Stinker right now is Suicide Squad, just because I'm interested to see where the direction is going, and I kind of like the cast, and of course, Shrike was there. Mm-hmm. I can't say that it was the best first issue I've read, and there were moments that were kind of dull, but I... I don't even really think that that's a stinker. It's not. It's not particularly bad. Aside from dull moments, it, it didn't really fail in any other way for me. So yeah. Yeah, there's weeks where I don't want to choose a bad one either, yeah. but somebody's got to cut the cheese. Got to do it. <laughs> Rob, who was your stinker of the week? For me, like Brandon said, there was so many good choices. I, it's hard to pick a bad one, and I'm picking Sensational Wonder Woman just by not being the best. It was a little too quick of a story, I felt. I think it probably would have been better as just a digital first and instead of getting a physical release. I enjoyed it, but it was probably the worst of the week, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, because everything was great. Yeah, I definitely I definitely get that. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that there was anything that was just egregiously bad this mm-hmm. week which is encouraging especially in your first week of kind of like this relaunch i agree with what you said there rob it it should have just been a digital first i don't see a reason why this was released as a physical copy um it actually threw me off and i when i uh, initially threw this for the podcast i did not realize that this was just going to be a reprint of the digital first so that said i know you guys were kind of easy on it but to me this it really it felt insulting to the character it's not horrible but the whole thing feels like it should have been contained in like this digital first one shot unrelated to anything else. Kind of like what Rob said. I just, I can't get behind this one. So Sensational Wonder Woman with a score of 5.5 out of 10 is my stinker of the week. And that's the show. Come back next week where we'll be covering Wonder Woman number 770, Superman number 29, The Joker number 1, Batman Urban Legends number 1, and two additional titles outside of the Infinite Frontier label, Rorschach number 6 and Green Lantern Season 2 number 12. That's the finale to that one. So we will see you there. As always, you amazing humans out there, thank you so very much for listening. You are the reason why we do this. Visit campsite.bio forward slash notarobotcomics to hear all of our episodes on nearly any podcast platform. And you can visit patreon.com forward slash notarobotpodcast for exclusive content that we make just for our Patreons. There is all kinds of offerings, Kid Corner, Real Talk, Movies, TV, and more. Again, starting at just $1 a month. Visit notarobotpodcast.com and that will take you everywhere you need to go for everything Not A Robot. And with that, there's only one way that we say goodbye around here. Until next time. Be good to each other. And don't be a robot. Be good to each other.
Just love